Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 4, Episode 9, I Know What You Did Last Summer. Let's get this show on the road. I get the reference to the title. It's actually one of the, I say air quote, horror movies that like I can recall seeing the youngest. I remember renting it with some friends. I remember the basement that we were in. I think I remember whose basement it was, but I remember basically watching the movie like between my fingers, like not liking, you know how I am with horror in general. The only part I remember is like the very end where like there's like a surprise reveal that the killer isn't dead or something. I remember like that moment of like, oh, he's still alive. And then like cut to credits. And I was like, is this how all slasher flicks are? Though I cannot recall what happened in this terribly old movie. I know what happened on this week's episode. Shall I recap it? Please do. Let me count you down. Three, two, one, go brothers in a bar ruby shows up she's all like there's this girl i need you to go find and sam's all like okay dean's all like i don't know and they go to the institution where she was being kept and they realize that clearly she did know things because she had a notebook full of cool things and that demons probably came after her so they try to track her down then the demons attack and they lose the knife but then we kind of get this whole little subplot of sam explaining to dean how him and ruby came to be what they are today And now Dean kind of trusts Ruby because she's tried to save them more times and there's finally some friendship going on. And then they get Anna away and they meet up with Ruby and they're all safe together. But then, oh, no, something's coming and it's the demons. No way. Surprise. It's Cass. And yay, Cass is here. Everything's good. Cass says Anna has to die. Not so good. Fade to black. Question marks. Time. That's exactly what it is. And it's very frustrating because you want to you want to know more. It ends very abruptly. I feel like at some point I asked you if we had any two parters coming up and you were kind of like, no, they don't really happen very often. So like in my mind, I always expect an episode to end with like some kind of conclusion. And then like, again, not looking at the timing of this episode and realizing that it just ended on this cliffhanger. I was all like, grr. (laughs) It's very rare that there's a to be continued. And I know that when I was watching it the first time, I was just like, what happens next? Shall we move on to the long game? Because the quicker we get through this episode, the quicker I can go watch part two and find out what I missed. We meet Anna. And like you said, she knows a lot about angels and the 66 seals and Lilith. And she can recognize demons and move furniture. And I was kind of wondering what you thought about all that. It's weird because like half of the things that she does kind of feel like one of the special children like Sam. The moving furniture, being able to, I, I guess, know things, I guess, kind of ties in well with that. But then the being able to see the faces we only ever saw in Dean when he was like nearly about to die. Is she like on the verge of death or is she magic? Do you think she could be one of the special children with like just enhanced abilities? That's my first bet. That is where my money lands part one. So I'll be excited to see when they reveal that Lord knows that something crazier, but that's where my first bet is. Okay, I think that sounds good. Let's keep that in mind. We're also back in a mental health institution. And the first time that we were was in Asylum, where it was abandoned and haunted. And I'm just kind of noticing here, 
when in supernatural we are in mental health institutions because there's just kind of a thread that I'd like to to follow through the show because important things happen in mental health institutions on this show. Our first time in asylum, like you said, was a defunct institution. I mean, it was our first time that burning the bones actually was used to success. What major revelations did we have in that episode of drawing a blank? I don't think necessarily it was any big major revelations. Like it kind of helped us to understand the boys a little bit more because, you know, this was in season one. It was one of the very first episodes. I think for me, it's more like what happens after this rather than just an asylum. We see the brothers hustling, which is always a treat. It's a trope, but it works and I love it. I think it was in season one where Dean was like, I worked for that money. And then and then Sam is like, what, you wanted a pool or something? And now we're seeing them both with Sam being the most involved in the <laughs> in the scam. And I just think that it's, um, again, just a, a, an interesting little thread to follow through the years. But I also feel like between the two of them, as much as Dean's probably the one who's played pool more, Sam's probably got like the mathematical brain behind it to like be better at it mathematically. <laughs> So they sort of just agreed, like, yeah, you be the nerd and do all the numbers floating around your head stuff and make the pool good, good shoot. I feel like that would be a really good question. Who would win at pool between Sam or Dean? I think it would be Sam, though. I really think it'd be Sam. That smart and mathy side of him would just outdo Dean's cockiness. If I'm being honest, I think it would probably be like very close all the time. Like one time one would win and then another time the other would win kind of thing. Like it would be very, very close all the time. But yeah, I, I, I see that. I believe that too. That, that also makes a lot of sense. We also get our very first mention of Angel Radio. I feel like we've brought it up before. Or like, I think you and Rochelle brought it up at some point in like the like planning stages of our show. And I was like, that's a thing, I guess. And here it is. Originally, we were thinking about maybe calling our community segment uh, Angel Radio. A little peek behind the curtains there. And we meet Alistair. Kind of loving him as far as demons go. He just has that like, level of like cool badassness that makes him feel like super threatening without being like really evil. Like I know he's evil, but he doesn't give off the vibe as much. Combined with the fact that he just shrugs off the knife like it's nothing. That makes him so scary to me. It's always great when they introduce a villain and they give you that, like, you know, when we first met Meg and she was able to walk into a church or we first met Yellow-Eyed Demon, he could withstand holy water. Like, there's always that level of, like, they have to, like, do something that makes them, like, look how awesome I am. The thing you used to do to kill demons doesn't work on me. And the knife has kind of been the ultimate. Nope, no good on Alistair. He's just fine. Yeah, so far, I don't think that they've met anything that the knife didn't kill. And Alistair is one of those things. So did you, like, get the relationship between Dean and Alistair? Like, what did you get from that? I'm sure it's going to lead us back to Dean's time in hell. So I'm assuming that Revelation has to be around the corner. There was some kind of familiarity between the two of them. Alistair definitely knew Dean, not just the way he knew of Sam. Definitely. And that revelation is around the corner. I just actually couldn't remember if it was made in this episode or the next one. So that's why I was asking. <laughs> and lastly, sobriety comes up for the first time. The long awaited uh, Ruby and Sam backstory, which we also get this episode. It's almost like Ruby is the one convincing him not to drink, 
which seems very out of place for a demon to be doing, but I love that a little bit. But it sort of just ties back to what we've talked about in the past where the drinking is very much as a lot of people use it in film and media today to show that someone is troubled and dealing with something and being sober is getting past it. A very, very simple metaphor, but it does do the job in, in media like this. So having Sam be wild and crazy and reckless and drinking and then Ruby kind of coax him into sobriety and then make him more cool headed and learned and, you know, get back into fighting shape. It, it's very blunt metaphor, but it works very well. I mean, if I'm saying that it shows up for the first time, it means that we're going to be hearing about this a little bit more. But yes, right now we're hearing about it, I guess, in the most expected of ways. And we'll be able to talk about that more near the end of the season. And like you highlighted, we find out what Sam had been doing during Dean's time in hell. I enjoy the way they kind of worked around the whole possessing somebody and making them a part of this relationship unwillingly by using effectively a corpse. <laughs> I don't know if that's better. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's not much better, but it's definitely better karmically. What is her line again when she first wakes up in the hospital? Who do I have to kill to get some French fries around here? I love that she just wants fries. Like, I think it's like twice in this episode she does that. She's like, I want fries. <laughs> Feed this girl some French fries. Fries for Ruby. <laughs> I believe that wraps up our long game with um, a lot of interesting things. I'm definitely excited to come back to. I'm hoping part two answers some of these questions sooner rather than later. But shall we head to the story time? Yes, please. Today, our theme is memory and particularly how memory relates to our identity. Sorry, little parenthesis. I just watched Inside Out with eight year old. That's a movie that basically talks about your memories and how they affect your behavior and the emotions that are attached to memories. And so trying to look at this episode through that lens. What a wholesome movie to compare um, and use as a jumping off point for Supernatural. I feel like it might be difficult, <laughs> but most of the choices this week really come down to like a the team working together really feels like Sam and Dean are working on things. But Sam's real decision is to finally open up and reveal to Dean what it was like while he was gone. This really focuses on the relationship both professionally and romantically with Ruby. Emphasis on the romantic side, as a Dean would like me to skip. But Sam really became a darker, more chaotic version of himself, which we kind of also saw in the Return of the Trickster episode when Dean was officially dead. And it just sort of shows how far Sam is going as far to try and face Lilith unprepared. I mean, there's just this chaos to him. He is just basically on a suicide mission. I believe Ruby, as a matter of fact, realizes this and stops him. But also it grounds him in his connection with someone. And I think this is what Sam is always kind of needed and always needs is someone else to kind of be as much as Sam kind of comes off as the rational one. Most of the time he needs someone else to rationalize with. Or else he becomes unstable. And as much as usually that is Dean, now it is Ruby or was Ruby. And Sam's claims his actions are in some way tied to the memory of Dean doing this out of like revenge or anger. But reality is just using Dean's memory as kind of a scapegoat for his own angers and frustrations. The first thing that you said that really kind of like grabbed my attention is when you said that the connection, the close connection that he had with Dean, he now has with Ruby. 
And do you remember in episode one of season four, when I was like that closeness that they have and like how they know each other's moves in terms of like lying to other people and like reading the other person when they're lying and just like going along with the game and the scam. And we saw that when Ruby was like, where's the pizza? We're seeing that in that moment as well, or in this episode as well, when Sam is like, oh, we just wait for Ruby. And then Dean is like, but how is she going to find us? And then Sam just looks at him like, she's going to find us. (laughs) And she does. It's so weird seeing the chemistry we're used to between Sam and Dean being shared between Sam and Ruby. Like, it really feels like she subbed in for Dean as far as the demon hunting aspect of it goes and nothing else. That that like connection that he so desperately needs with his brother, he has now found in another partner. Yeah, I think that you're definitely right. And I mean, if we're kind of like taking a step back a little bit, I, I just want to say that I fully agree that Sam's biggest choice in this episode is to share that information or, and those memories with Dean. And I think that knowing about that, knowing what happened with Sam, that helps Dean to connect or at least to reconnect a little bit with Sam after a bit of a rocky beginning of a season, you know, where they're not always seeing eye to eye and they're doing things a little bit differently and they're like out of sync, you know? And so obviously, obviously, this is because Dean is then able to be a little bit more understanding of Sam and a bit more accepting of Ruby as well, knowing that she helped keep Sam alive. I'm really going to spell it out, but I think the mechanism of it is really important. When you tell someone about your past experiences, it really helps them to understand you better. Even if they still disagree with some of your choices, at least they can understand them more. And there's Also this idea that proximity like breeds more understanding. So that means that like by sharing our experiences with one another, we're essentially bonding and we're more likely to feel and to show more empathy for the person that we're bonding with. This this empathizing that Dean does with Ruby after hearing what Sam had to share. The way you can even see the way Ruby responds to Dean's actions later that episode she's baffled by them because suddenly he's not being combative or like, you know, fighting with her the way that he normally would. I can only imagine from Ruby's point of view, literally in the matter of like a few hours going from like, I got to like dance around eggshells with this guy to like him thanking me, I guess. What? I'm confused. What happened? Who died? I mean, almost straining himself to try to say thank you. (laughs) Yes, I, I will admit that uh, the thank you scene there was quite it was very them. It was a, it's a very nice dynamic between the two of them that I adore. The like, I don't like you, but I'm going to have to learn to like you. And I guess you're not that bad. You helped save Sam's life and therefore I will deal with you being around. I will cope with you being around. I will stop calling you a skank and a bitch and I will just give you silly nicknames the way I do Sam and other people I like. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. It's a very wholesome episode for Sam, despite how dark we see he was in this time period. Uh, The hoodie phase, I decided to call it during our live watch this episode where it's just like 
Sam's in a hoodie. He's being angsty and angry and doing bad things. And then as soon as Ruby's like, stop being stupid, he's like, oh, I can put on a regular shirt again. It's like very, (laughs) very clear clothing equals mood. Did you notice the last time that we saw Dean in a hoodie was in Faith when he was sick? Yeah, they don't wear hoodies often, these boys. It really comes down to like when they're like out of character. Except in the first season where Sam wears a hoodie in season one, I think, if I'm not in episode one, I think. Yeah, but even then, he's very out of character. He's used to being Harvard boy. And now suddenly he's Demon Hunter boy. Yeah, fair. Stanford, be careful. That's those are fighting words. <laughs> Let me mix up my Ivy League schools. Right, exactly. Be very careful, Drew. <laughs> Let's talk about Dean a little bit. Dean finally decides he can actually trust Ruby. I mean, given everything we talked about with Sam, but like for real, it seems once again, through Sam's telling of the four months without him, minus the sexy details, Dean accepts that Ruby is on their side. And it's also, I mean, Dean has to accept this. This isn't just a, okay, you've laid out the facts. I mean, this is finally the realization of I was wrong. I am now realizing I had all these negative assumptions of Ruby given the information I had and I refuse to accept her. But now that I've seen what she can do and that I understand her place in our world, you know, Dean goes from someone who would never really trust a non-human, especially a demon, to being trusting. Dean is also electing to trust Ruby over Cass. One is trying to kill an innocent woman, we find out, and the other one is trying to help them. It's a little easier to pick sides. But, I mean, Dean picks Ruby over Cass. I think at the end of this particular episode, it's not quite clear who he picks, but you can tell that he's not very happy with what Cass is saying. I am inferring a little bit, but I'm going to take a wild guess and say that when Dean has to then vocalize, do I side with the demon chick who's friends with helping my brother or this angel who raised me from hell and wants to kill an innocent woman? I know where Dean lands on this one without having to have him say it. What I find really interesting in him deciding to trust Ruby is that he does that after Sam tells him what Ruby did for him. Right. Which kind of comes back to the point about Sam. Like what what makes Dean trust Ruby is Sam's choice to share the the information that he has, the memories of Ruby that he has with Dean. So Sam's choice influences Dean's choice, right? So it kind of works like in a cascading way. And it sort of makes me wonder how much of the memories or the stories of others that we hear end up shaping the way that we think about the world and the decisions that we make for ourselves. Here, Dean is finally trusting Ruby after like, what, a year of calling her, like I said, like a bitch and a whore and a skank. Sorry, a bitch and a skank. And I'm just saying like, that's a pretty big 180. And it's only earned through a memory that isn't even his. This is kind of where the idea of proximity comes into play, because the bond that you have with somebody can help you change your mind about things or even about people. I think that's the most important part of uh, Dean's choice this week is that While memory is so important to who you are, it's also really important to who other people are and how you perceive other people. History is written by the winners. We know information about people. We have collective social memory of events written from the point of view of our culture, which can heavily sway the way you look at different people, different things and different scenarios. 
Uh, I'm being very broad here, but I think everyone can kind of pick little bits of this. But here we're seeing a very de definite version of this, of learning the history of Sam and Ruby has now changed and better shaped Dean's perspective of Ruby. It has also shaped the relationship between Dean and Ruby. Oh, 100%. And I think something that's really important here is that Dean changed his mind based upon new information that was brought into play. And, you know, this whole idea that it's okay to change your mind, I think, is a very important one here. Yeah, I would say if I had to pick someone on the show who's a bit um, hard-headed and would usually stick to their guns, it would be Dean. So having Dean accept this, like it almost felt too quick. Like weirdly, if it were me writing the show, my I would have it like take place over the course of a few episodes. This like level, like, you know, OK, I'll tolerate her. And then maybe the next episode, like get along with her. And then like the third episode, finally thank her for helping Dean uh, help for helping Sam. My next question for you in terms of just like what you think happens is, do you think that this is the start of a healthier relationship or just like a blip in Dean and Ruby's history? My heart wants to say this is going to be a better relationship and I can see some fun dynamics between them going forward. Like I think they have, I think I said before, I really like the trope of the like two people who only really get along because of a third person but then they have their own friendship grow out of it. I also feel like Supernatural is the kind of show that would not give that to me, and they're going to go back to hating each other next week, but just be a little more tolerable. So I have hope, but I'm not going to show it because the show would ruin it if I did. <laughs> the show would ruin it even if you didn't show it. <laughs> yes, valid point. We'll see what happens next week. I will say on the bright side with next week is that it's such a continuation of this week's episode that it's going to be a relatively on the same tone. My question is more like for the rest of the season with Ruby. How do we feel? I would like to see that relationship flourish, even if it is just like a snarky friendship. But I could also see the classic tropes of just sort of falling back into their existing dynamic, just with a little more, little less animosity, maybe. Is there any other place in the episode where memory shows up? So unfortunately, I feel like I would have so many more thoughts about memory in this episode, but there's a lot of information that only comes to light much later, not only in the next episode, but even with regards to Cass and memory, the girls who get it, get it. I feel like Anna is kind of weird in this episode while she is kind of the MacGuffin item. She is the person to be saved. She is also paramount to the conclusions. Like, clearly, the demons want her. Now, we find out the angels want her. Um, weirdly, the demons don't seem to want her dead, but the angels do. So there's a lot of mystery there, but none of it really ties to memory per se. I just feel like there's something about Anna we don't know. And I'm assuming it will become clear soon. I mean, right now, my money is still on her being one of these special children. But then why do they want to kill her and not Sam? I, I like I said, I'm out of it a bit. I just really need to get off my chest this whole like, grr, I need Anna information. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I it's always exciting to kind of hear like how people work this out when they don't have all the information. So, yeah, very illuminating. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a hint? I don't know anymore. <laughs> I don't know. Is it? 
I'm trying to think. How should I know? <laughs> I don't know, actually. Let's, uh, let's head on over to critical time. This episode was written by Sarah Gamble and directed by Charles Beeson. Is it the same writer-director combo for next week's episode? It is not the same. Okay, don't spoil it. We'll we'll get that next week. Not that I think it'll change much, but that is so weird to have a like such a clear two-part episode and then change either your writer, director, or both. That just seems very Oh, like it doesn't like I don't know what it says per se, but it says something. <laughs> I didn't think it would be that big a deal. <laughs> The obvious example I pull from is the new uh, Star Wars trilogy where they changed director and the entire team for the second film and then went back to the first director for the third film. And you can clearly see how there was like kind of a story and then it kind of fell apart and they had to kind of scrabble it back together because there was no real cohesion between the three. Because generally when you're trying to tell one larger story, it's this, sort of the same way the Kripke episodes sort of seem to like really kind of like encapsulate the biggest moments because they need to kind of tell his narrative. So it just feels weird to have a writer start a story like a very clear two part story, not like a segment within a larger narrative. Anyways, I just think it's kind of interesting and I'll be curious to know which if which of if not both were switched out for the next episode. I'm so excited to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> While we wait for this, I would love to hear a little bit about the lore this week. It stood before me, a creature unlike any I had ever seen. It wasn't quite a man, and not quite an animal, but it had many horns. It spoke to me in a most seductive voice, asking of me to do its bidding, to serve a dark lord that would bring me salvation, and free the world of its silly little squabbles. It tried to make me feel at ease. It wanted me to serve, and it knew exactly what to say to get what it wanted. I was on my knees before the entity, bowing my head and praying to it, and its dark master. I have found salvation, and oh, it is good. Much as this episode appears to be a two-part affair, so too is my lore segment. Next week, I will have a sibling piece to this one, and hope that together they will help illustrate my point. But for now, I remind you that demons, devils, and dark entities, while not in the original text a direct correlation to angels, translations and interpretations from other cultures have tied them together in ways leading to our current cultural connection of angels falling and becoming the demons we see today. At this point, we haven't really discussed an angel you know, like falling or like if Lucifer was an angel beforehand, I don't think it ever was made clear. Nope, that has not been made clear yet. Uh, it's something that we'll find out about a little bit later. Well, it's interesting because at the end of the day, there is sourcing for both sides of this argument. Uh, as I alluded to here in the original Jewish texts, there's never really a connection between angels and devils. There's some translations later on by the Greeks and the Romans that do sort of take some of these terms uh, that were not directly related to devils and then were later turned into evil entities or creatures. Uh, and they then sort of through the translation tied them to angels. So it's almost like this weird, we all sort of know it today. I feel like a lot of pop culture versions of angels and demons do have that relationship 
where like one became the other and vice versa in some cases. But in the original text, there's no direct translation of this. It's only the later interpretations by other cultures of existing religions. We know that humans become demons in hell. Yes, true. So we do have that. But then I have the question, where do the first demons come from or the first demon come from? I think you alluded we do learn this eventually. Yes, we do. So let's go with the assumption. I'm just making assumptions here that angels don't become demons or devils. Can an angel stop being an angel? And if so, does that make them like a different type of demon? Or is that what we're going to learn the first demon was like? I'm intrigued to see how they tackle any, if any, of these categories, because it's an area that there's a lot of room to interpret and make your own lore. So I'll be very intrigued to see how that works. Okay. Oh, my goodness. I'm so excited for us to get there for you. Ah. Would you have any thoughts to share with us this week? I do. I'm actually going to be sharing a memory because, you know, why not? Um, It's not a very far memory. It happened like last month, so it's not a big deal. But still. I just wanted to share that. When I rewatched this episode, like I said, about a month ago, I noticed that there was something that I hadn't ever noticed before on it. And usually when that happens, I get really, really excited and I take to Twitter. So I tweeted something like, in all caps, of course, uh, oh my God, Anna has the lesbian flag colors and stained glass behind her. Oh my God, yes. I do recall during our live watch, you you mentioning that and the kind of our, our chat going off the chain for it. I was super excited, super happy about it. And I'm like, I noticed a thing. <laughs> and then one of our patrons responded and was like, yeah, it might look like that. But this came out in 2008 and the lesbian flag, as we know, it was designed in 2010. Sorry. <laughs> oh, I do remember them saying that in the chat. Yes, exactly. And so like, don't get me wrong. Like I was super thankful to the person for letting me know, because obviously I don't want to be like spreading false information or just like in this case, like faulty analysis that doesn't actually take the historical context into uh, account. But I was just so disappointed about it. (laughs) Okay. But, and this is a big, but if Anna winds up being gay, I'm calling conspiracy. <laughs> and I'm just saying right now, my first reading of Anna, I, I can I can get the queer out of her. Um, <laughs> I, I, I can I can sense it in her. So, yeah, if she winds up being a lesbian and then this stained glass thing happened two years before the flag. We have questions for her to design that flag and what their fandoms were. <laughs> Maybe the flag was designed based on the glass. I don't know. <laughs> I, it's a possibility, assuming <laughs> Uh, who knows? We're not, I was going to say, please, we're not actually saying that. It's just. <laughs> For all we know, next week, it's revealed she's, I don't know, pan, by arrow, ace, uh, who knows? You know, watching it today, not really knowing or not really remembering the exact dates, this definitely reads as like a message, right? And it's not because it wasn't at all something that was uh, in anybody's mind at the time. But I just find it interesting sometimes. Yeah, no, to see like little moments of that where it like you can make the connection, but then only later realize that like the timelines don't add up. Like, I I know what you mean. It's so interesting. Yeah, it's like, oh, this happened, but it was like two years ago, but it just 
fits for some reason. Anyway, there you go. I know that people have a lot of headcanons about Anna being a lesbian, so I figured I would share that. Uh, I suddenly doubt my, my original reading of her after that last sentence. If it's headcanons. Whoops. Guess, guess my gaydar was off for Anna. Shall we go see what our community has to share with us while I had my embarrassment? This week, we have a message from Simone. But before we play it, we want to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail about where do you see memory in Supernatural? Who do you think would win at pool, Sam or Dean? Or to respond to anything else we discussed today, you can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwigward at gmail. Hello, Marie and Drew. My name is Simon. I'm calling in with some thoughts to expand on the discussion in your latest episode, brought forward by Nell and her terrific voicemail, and Drew and Marie's subsequent discussion at the end of the episode. I want to proffer another potential lens through which to critically analyze the ways the character construction of Sam and Dean operate in season four and subsequently season five, of course, keeping things as spoiler-free as possible. It is fair to argue that season one through three were instrumental to world building and the early character development for the brothers as the two main protagonists of the series. I have more thoughts about how this dynamic changes following the introduction of Castiel, but I'll leave that for another time if you're interested. By the time we reach season four and five, which as we know, Kripke tend to be the end of the series, we can observe how the overarching narrative draws heavily from Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces from 1949. More specifically, Campbell's conception of the monomyth as the common template for stories that involve a hero or heroes who go on a fantastical adventure, experience a decisive crisis, and then come home changed or transformed, and so on. Additionally, Kripke has acknowledged this fascination with the hero's journey and his exploration of it within Supernatural. Fun fact, Campbell's book, the Hero with a Thousand Faces makes a cameo in the opening sequence of Season 1, Episode 2, Wendigo. I have by no means researched this at length. I'm not a literature scholar. Instead, I come to this with a film studies lens. It's a working theory that I'll probably never do anything with, so I thought why not share it with the caring, wayward community. This may be contentious given how much of the fandom loves these characters, and many deeply identify with them. But hear me out. I would argue the generic conventions, archetypes, and cultural contexts that inform how our main characters are constructed in the show, which emerge in season four and crystallize in season five, locate Sam and Dean as occupying a very crunchy and somewhat contradictory space as reluctant heroes, oscillating between being anti-heroes and tragic heroes. This does not mean that they're unsympathetic, quite the opposite in fact. The reluctant hero is a tarnished or ordinary person with several faults or a troubled past. The key idea here is that the reluctant hero is portrayed as having doubts. This archetype epitomizes Dean's characterization in Season 4 and Sam in Season 1 and 2. Anti-heroes generally lack the conventional attributes of a capital H hero. Flawed, but audience love them anyway. They operate in a morally gray and somewhat ambiguous space but their choices have direct consequences on the outcome of the narrative. Think Clint Eastwood as the man with no name in A Fistful of Dollars from 1964. Season 4, we see the writers trying to cast Sam into the space. Tragic heroes have fatal flaws that bring tragedy upon themselves and those around them. 
There's misfortune is brought about not by vice or depravity, but by some error or fate. This archetype is salient moving forward in the series. When characters do questionable things, their past trauma and backstory serve to justify their actions and incite empathy. Both brothers have occupied this particular space at different points in the run of the series. As the series progresses, we can observe how their respective characterizations often fluidly move between these two archetypes. In order to move the plot forward, often Sam and Dean are put in opposition in order to underscore their differing character motivations. Likewise, writers draw on the boys' trauma as a bottomless conflict vending machine. The series begins as a supernatural procedural with Sam and Dean searching for their father and seeking revenge for their mother. They essentially operate as outsiders, protecting people from supernatural threats. By season four, the writers shift to focusing on the larger metaplot, introducing apocalyptic events. This deliberately builds their respective character arcs in such a fashion that their actions have larger cosmic consequences, therefore ultimately raising the narrative stakes. We will continue to see our characters lament shouldering the responsibilities thrust upon them, and likewise their respective reluctance to be the hero, to make the right choice, to save the day, are frequently textually acknowledged. This is notable within the broader cultural context. Supernatural emerged following the height of prestige TV in the early 2000s, which was synonymous with the rise of the anti-hero. Think Sopranos, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, and so forth. Our TV screens were resplendent with representations of charismatic, white, cisgendered men behaving badly. These quote-unquote difficult men were constructed in such a fashion that no matter how reprehensible their actions, they were justified within the narrative and the audience would still root for them. The reason why the emergence of the flawed protagonist was so fresh and resonant in the early 2000s was because it broke down boundaries, defied audience expectations, and led the way for more complex, multidimensional characters never seen before on the small screen. If nothing else, it's notable to point out the ways the show mines maximum man pain for audience pleasure. Therefore, the character's backstory and their trauma are key to their characterizations and motivations now and moving forward in the series. So perhaps with an analysis through this lens, we might be able to critically examine the development and growth of Sam and Dean, which take a more ostensibly complex approach to the characterization of the contemporary hero in media and culture. While well, I would love to dive into a larger discussion of representations of masculinity in class, I won't for the sake of brevity. I think I've already gone longer than I should. Anyway, I guess that was my tech talk. Thank you to Drew and Marie for all their hard work. Sending love and good vibes from Toronto. Wow, that was a great, like, like you said, TED Talk. I was just like hooked. Like you, you were like, oh yeah, no, there's more I can go on. And I'm like, please keep going. I want the next voicemail. Honestly, I sat down, I grabbed a pen and a paper and I just started taking notes because I was like, this is, this is really interesting. And the fact that you're mentioning that uh, Joseph Campbell's book shows up very, very early in the first season is something that I had never noticed 
And I was, I just recently started listening to Monster of the Week and they, they caught it. It's, it's in their, in their podcast and they're talking about how, uh, there's a Joseph Campbell book at the beginning. And I was having my, you know, hot girl, gender neutral walk, um, a couple of days ago <laughs> with my iced coffee and my supernatural podcast. And I was listening to this, like walking down the street and just going like, Joseph Campbell, this early in the show? What? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, we, without revealing anything, uh, Joseph Campbell's theories do follow through all the way until season 15. So this is definitely something that I know I want to learn more about uh, so that we can talk about it a little bit more, just with a little bit more knowledge, I guess. I love the comparisons you've made to how there is this culture of this, you know, cis white man, anti-hero doing, doing wrong, but for the right reasons. So it's excused and the audience can get behind them even when what they're doing is despicable. Because, yeah, in most scenarios, the brothers, you know, aren't really doing the greatest of deeds. I mean, we've seen them end the life of multiple people at this point, not even just like creatures, but just people who had to be caught in the crossfire either through, you know, exorcism or using the knife to kill a demon. I mean, you and I have had those like lengthy talks and lengthy conversations about like, you know, what they did was wrong. And then like, oh, yeah, but they had to. Yeah, but it was wrong. Yeah, but they had to. And they were justified. Yeah, but they. And so we've had those conversations. They exist. And I think it just it's to see that it isn't just this show, how it's just become like a cultural norm almost. It's just it's a really it's a really salient point that I really want to just grab onto for a moment because it was well said and well explained and coming at this also with a bit of a film degree background. It's just really a great example of an early piece of media to kind of pick this up and set it forward. Like, I don't want to sit here and say, like, Breaking Bad was inspired by Supernatural. It's so interesting to like list these shows you listed and have them feel so more recent than Supernatural was, but to connect so well together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure. I mean, that's that's kind of the thing in media. There's waves of different things where certain themes are explored for a lot of reasons. And during that time, that was a thing that was being explored quite a bit. And I just lastly need to give a shout out to the term. What was it? It was bottomless uh, vending machine of of trauma of trauma. That's what it was. Oh, yeah. my God. Oh, I I have to say, yeah, I particularly appreciated the maximizing of the man pain for the audience because it's it's true sometimes that they're in French. You say you would say il le beurre épais. Meaning like they would, and this is Quebecois French, but like meaning like laying off, laying it on thick. Of course, this is an expression that exists in English. Of course. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was going to say the direct, the direct translate. I was going to say, no, we're keeping this because the direct translation would be they're in thick butter. They're laying a lot of butter on it. Essentially. They're buttering it pretty thick. <laughs> I mean, that's how I butter all my toast, really. It's the only way. <laughs> for sure. Uh, but yeah, so Simon, thank you so much for this. And uh, hello from Montreal. Shall we take some time ourselves to reflect on this episode and see what actions we have been called to? Yes, we have a lot of thoughts. 
I will say that what we discussed in this episode is actually very important to me. It's actually part of the proposed topic for my PhD dissertation. And it's how the personal narratives that we hear from others and share about ourselves change the way that we perceive ourselves and our place in the world. So in my dissertation, it would be mostly in the context of living with a chronic condition. But I think that that there could be bits and pieces of it that are relatable to people in general, to people at large. And this, I know that this feels a little off compared to the, the, the action, the call to action that I usually have, but my call to action this week is to start reading some of the materials that I was suggested on this topic, because I need to get started and clearly it would be useful for the podcast as well. Like, I feel like very often, and like, I think I do this a lot where my call to action is very like broad and open and like, I'll do this, but I'm inviting everyone to do it. And yours today is very like, I got to read some books that were recommended to me. Like everyone else can read your books, but these are my books to read. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, the call to action has to be personal because it's like, what did I get from this? Right. So that I can say that I was personally invested and I'm not just telling others what they should be doing. Like for me, it has to be about me very selfishly. Obviously, isn't everything about me, Drew? Anyway, what about you? <laughs> That's how I try to live every day is what can I do for Mary today? <laughs> thank you. Thank you. How about you tell me your reflection and call to action? <laughs> sure. So my reflection today really comes down to what we discussed with Dean in this idea of reevaluating things in front of you. You know, it's very we as a human species find it very difficult to be given information and then forced to reevaluate our views on something and then ultimately change our mind. And I think it's really easy just to try to stand your ground and defend your point and not listen to someone else's points. And I think the general climate of the Internet these last few years has really kind of focused that, unfortunately. So my personal call to action today is really and what I can share with everybody as well is to unselfishly, <laughs> unlike me, <laughs> unselfishly, mine is available to everyone if you want to do this. Um, and I, and I, it's because it's something I don't do very often. And I find myself when I do it, I feel defeated. And I want to flip the script on that. It's listen to other people, listen to other opinions, take the time to hear people out. And again, Within your own boundaries and your safety, if you I'm not saying go to a racist homophobe and ask them why they're racist homophobes, that's probably not going to be the best conversation. But if someone has a different opinion about different, you know, media consumption or a different reading on a character in a book that you both read, let that be a conversation starter and be willing to accept that they may have a different view and see if it changes your view moving forward. Yeah, I honestly, I love that. That's uh, very apl applicable to everybody. And um, yeah, it definitely makes me think about it as well. Yeah, I recently came across a TikToker who's been doing a marvelous job. It really feels like she's taken the like format of our show almost like how in depth we get and squeezed it into like a five minute TikTok on the show Full Metal Alchemist and the, the manga and the surrounding media with it. And she's been able to bring up some really amazing pieces of information and points and views that while they were never like antithetical to 
my point of view, they open my eyes to different perspectives in the show and kind of like the like I always sort of saw the show as being very anti-religion and she was able to prove that no, it really embraces religion but in its own way. And I think it's important when you can absorb information and I think a really easy way to do that is start with things you already are interested in but are willing to be open-minded about. Right. And I think that fiction, again, is a really great place to start because you might not, it might be, it might feel more challenging to have your mind changed or to have an open mind about certain things that are um, happening in real life. And by real life, I mean that are not fictional. I don't mean not online. But as we've discussed, fiction is is a relatively safe place for us to kind of practice things that are a little bit challenging for us, whether that's empathy, whether that's uh, changing our minds, whether that's humility, whether that's, you know, bravery, whatever it is, fiction is a place for us to start. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Marie Vigahou and myself, Drew Shulman. Thank you to our Bunker patrons, Katira, Michelle, and Elle, for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Simon for their message. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a three-minute voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward. And leave us a rating and a review on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to join our coffee or Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to carryingwayward.com. Carry on our wayward friends. That could not be a better soundbite to end the episode on if I fucking scripted it for you. <laughs> that was that was like I want that like I want that on my tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> Aw, thank you.